You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Amen. Would you remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me to attain. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as they were none, there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And I do, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Yet search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I think we just go home. David said it better than I'm going to say it today, so... Um, If you are new here, I want to say an extra special welcome. There should be a visitor card nearby underneath the seat. We'd love for you to fill that out really quick and give us your information so we can follow up with you, get you connected, tell you about all the great things that are going on around Stonegate. Later on, we do the offering. You can just drop that in the offering basket, and we would love to follow up with you this week. Uh, My name is Ryan, serve on staff here, and we are continuing on in our Psalm series. And if you are new, what a great time to join us because the Psalms, here's what I love about the Psalms. Psalms really is just another way of saying songs. It is the songs of the Bible. It's the songs. So in in some ways, I wish we were just singing them all because they're meant to be sung. And like any good song, songs capture an emotion, right? 
There's songs of passion. There's songs of jubilation. And then there's songs of sorrow and lament and mourning. There's all sorts of songs. And what do songs do? Songs take us to an emotional place in our life, right? We can often remember where we were, what season of life we were in when we heard a certain song. I know for me, sometimes when I hear like voice to men, I think of like my junior high years and awkward dances I would go to. Or I, I think of Nirvana and I think of some of my high school years and this grunge look that I was trying to pull off, but not well at all. Or I think of my college years where I was pulling all-nighters and studying late and listening to you 2 in the library till two in the morning. But what it does is it takes me to certain moments. That's why we have songs at weddings. That's why we have first songs and love songs and songs that capture a memory and a moment for us. Because what they do is they emotionally connect us. And so much of our life, so much of the Bible, so much of what God's trying to do with you and I is he's trying to intersect into our day-to-day, into the experience of life, into our reality. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Psalm 139 today. David, what I love about David is David is, is a gritty guy. He gets dirt underneath his fingernails. He's willing to go for it and saying, God, I don't want you to just be an abstract reality. I don't want you to just be something that I mentally assent to. I don't want you to just be something, a far off concept, but I want you to be someone who I know. I want you to be a person. I want you to be real. I want to have an experience, an encounter with you, God. With you, God. Um, A.W. Tozer a uh, famous uh, pastor, theologian from the 20th century. Here's what he said, and I think this is so insightful for us as we look at our passage today. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into your minds when you think about God? What comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us. I mean, think about that for a second. What comes into your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about you. And why would A.W. Tozer say it? What he's getting at is the very reality of what you construct or believe about God or what you think about God shapes all of your life, shapes all of your decisions, shapes all of your behavior, shapes everything about you. What you love, what you do, what you prioritize, and what you believe. Everything is shaped by what you believe about God because if there's a God, it changes everything. And what this God is like, that changes everything. If he's malevolent, if he's mean, if he's capricious, like the Greek gods, you'd want nothing to do with him. Maybe, I mean, so what's your concept of God? What do you believe about God? And not just in the, hey, I know the right Sunday school answer, but what do you live with? What is God on Monday morning for you? What is God like on Wednesday afternoon? What is God like when you get that phone call that life's about to fall apart? Who is God when you get that health scare? Our culture loves to talk about God. We love to speculate about the divine. We love to kind of have different ideas. Um, And in some ways, we're a culture where it's very cool to search for God, but not necessarily to find him. So everyone's on a quest with lots of question marks, but not necessarily so much interested in revelation in which the God of the universe reveals himself and shows himself for who he really is. In fact, some of the really popular concepts of who our culture will say God is, I'll have um, come up on the screen for you. Here's just a few of them. One, I mean, you get this notion very often that God is karma, that God is karma. Like, okay, I was on my way to work and my neighbor's trash can fell over, so I got out and put it back up and helped him out. So when I get to work today, there's gonna be a close parking spot right by the door. 
just evens out. You know what? I let that lady go in front of me at the grocery store, so that means later on when I get home, uh, you know, my, my, my wife's going to have dinner ready, or my husband's going to, you know, actually listen and go outside and mow the lawn when I, whatever it might be. But we have this karmic view that God, what it looks like, as long as I'm doing good for others, I should get good in return. This is kind of a, a force idea as well, like Star Wars-ish, like God is not personal, but it's an impersonal idea. It's a force. It's just out there. And you just want to stay on the good side of the ledger between your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. The Bible just calls this moralism, which is junk. But that's one way of viewing God. That's a very popular way. Another way is this idea that God's a slot machine. That really what I need to do as long as, and, and Christians, we can play this one really well. As long as I line up my life in a very neat and orderly fashion. I do my good deeds. I got my prayer time. I'm making sure I'm going through all the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to do. So now the blessings will pour down on me. And I don't know about you guys, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you can be the most holy person in the world and you still encounter the pit of life. And life still falls apart and life is still really hard. And that junk narrative telling you that if you just believe enough, if you just have enough faith, if you just pray hard enough, then all the blessings will pour down. It's actually cruel. Imagine telling that to someone who's in Iraq right now facing true persecution. The reason your life looks like that is you're just not having enough faith. And the reason your life's looking like that is because on this side of eternity, sometimes you'll have trouble. Sometimes things will be really hard. I mean, this is prosperity theology. And it misses the entire point of the Bible, which is God is not in it to give us blessings, but he is the blessing. That we're in it for God because God is the gift. God is the treasure, not the blessings that come down. And so if you're in it, if you're thinking like, man, as long as I do all the things that I'm supposed to, I'm going to get all the things I want out of life. That's manipulation. That's not the gospel. And God will not be anyone's puppet and he will not be anyone's butler. Another is um, a life coach. I think there's almost like a Tony Robbins approach to God. You know, when you look at the Bible, you primarily, and I'm not saying it doesn't have some helpful stuff in here, but you primarily are thinking, this is God's instruction manual for how to have a really peaceful, well-managed, well-taken-care-of life. When in reality, you miss what this is, is this ultimately is God's cosmic story of redemption in which he comes to pursue and woo and chase after wayward rebels who have defied him and walked away from him. And so you say, okay, my, my kids are a little bit of a mess. My marriage is a little bit of a mess. I don't seem to have the job I want. I just need to get things in order. And if God can help me do that, if he can just help me figure out my priorities and make everything fit and the boxes are all tidy and I have a nice work-life balance and everyone's behaving and doing the right thing, then that's what I want from God. And God won't do that either. He doesn't fit in boxes. He doesn't tolerate that. He doesn't stay just in certain areas, but rather he demands to be the Lord of everything, of all of your life. Another one is, is, is just kind of the cosmic cop, that God is a little grumpy, just a little annoyed, you know, a little perturbed all the time, and he's sitting up there just waiting for you to break a rule so he can issue a ticket. You know, maybe he's the lifeguard at the pool. When you start running, he just wants to make sure you slow down. You're about to have too much fun, so God's going to jump on in and be a cosmic killjoy. God's just up there to rain on your parade a little bit. But really, you don't want anything to do with him, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but I, most of my days, not cops as individuals, but as like law enforcement people, I don't want to interact with them. Like, I don't want them to pull me over. I don't, I don't want to have much of a relationship with them. For me, I feel like, okay, I'm doing good as long as I don't have interaction with a cop today. And I say that just because like some of us think that same thing about God. We think he's up there just waiting for us to break the rules so he can come down hard on us. 
Last one, I think this is where Christians can kind of slip into as well, where we become almost functional deists. This was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson believed that, yeah, there might have been a God who got this whole thing going. I can look at the the Big Bang and cosmology arguments, and I can look at the fine-tuning of the universe, but ultimately that God's got way better things to do than to worry about my little life, so he got things going, and then he took off. And so why bother to pray for him? Why bother to ask him for help with my life? Why bother to be open about my life and my problems and, and who I really am and open in my heart? There's no way he could want to know little old me. That's deism. And so all of these, all these are popular notions that we, we vacillate between and distortions of who the real God is. And what David does is David takes us in this psalm where he's lived an incredible life filled with messes and failures and mistakes and successes and some of the greatest accomplishments. And he says, I'm going to make a declaration, a confession of who the true God really is. And he makes some incredibly bold statements that tell us that David has a deep experiential and true relationship with God. Read again with me in verse 1. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. David is getting at that God is aware of everything. The God we serve, he's not surprised by anything. He's not wondering what happened a couple thousand years ago. He's not wondering about necessarily how it all began. He's not even wondering about the present or the future. God knows all of it. God has completely exhaustive knowledge. When he searches over the landscape of humanity, when he looks at our world, when he looks at the universe, he understands it all. Our God never learns. This is one of his attributes. God does not learn because he already knows all. All. And not only does God know all about the universe and about the world and all the information and facts already out there, but he knows you. This is what David's getting at. David makes it intensely personal. He says this God has not just a curiosity and a knowledge about the universe and a great amount of encyclopedic knowledge. He's not a walking Wikipedia, but rather he knows you. He knows your soul. He knows what really makes you tick. Verse 3, once again, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Our God is deeply familiar with us. Here's what John Calvin said. Um, Come up here on the screen. John Calvin says this, which I just think is absolutely brilliant when he talks about our knowledge of God being directly related to our knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of ourselves being tethered to our knowledge of God. He says, For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy, innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness that's supposed to be unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. And how does this play out? Like, I don't know about you guys, but I will never be uh, as smart as I was when I was 17. I don't know about you guys, but I thought I knew it all at 17. I'll, I'll probably never be that. And if you're 17, like, I'm just telling you, you're at your apex of, like, just knowledge and smartness about the way the world works and the way things are. So congratulations. Um, but from, from here, you're just going to have a lot more questions and confusion and, you know, figure out, I mean, it's just going to get more bumpy. That's all I'm saying. But I felt like I knew a ton. 
And here's another thing. Before I got married to Crystal, and so before I got married about 13 years ago, I would read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians that Paul wrote where he wrote about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And I would go through that list and I would kind of measure myself up to it, be like, who am I really? Try to understand myself. And I'd be like, I, I feel like I'm pretty patient. I feel like I'm pretty, you know, gentle and kind and I have great self-control and I'm very loving and I'm not harsh and, I, you know, I'm open to correction. I, I'm pretty forgiving. I mean, I had, I had this view of myself and then I got married and that got obliterated, <laughs> just obliterated to the point where all of a sudden I felt like for the first 22 years of my life, I'd been looking in a funhouse mirror a distorted view of who I really was. And all of a sudden, someone's showing me a real mirror, and I'm like, ew. Like, is that who I really am? Is that what I'm really like? It was like having a magnifying glass put on my soul. I wasn't nearly as kind as I thought I was. I was way less forgiving than I thought I was. I wasn't nearly the servant that I'd perceived myself to be. I was way less gracious. I was at times way too harsh. I was way too critical. I was anything but gentle. And here I was, here I was being introduced to myself. I was being introduced to my true self because if we're honest, every single one of us in this room, this is the beautiful thing about God. God knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, the only person you can never lie to is God. A lot of us, we can even make it through our entire lives lying to ourselves, telling ourselves false justification stories, false narratives, false realities, just re defensive postures about why we do the things we do or who we are, any of that. And God sees through all of that. And we go through life, and a lot of us do this, like especially the religious thing. We do it really well. We can say, this is who people see me to be. And then we have these spots in our lives where we still like, well, no one sees this, but I know this about myself. And then inside of our hearts, if we're really honest, there's this entire labyrinth stew pot of motivations that we don't even understand ourselves. Why am I like that? Why do I do that? Why do I return to that same sin? Why do I, why, 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 why can't I just figure it out? And, and, and David's saying, like, he has those same moments, and he's saying God is acquainted already with his ways, that God knows them. Here's the beautiful thing about God. God is in the business of not necessarily saying, I'm going to find all those things out so that you can be humiliated and put on the spot and shamed and shunned, but rather I want to bring them into the light so you can be restored and made new. Because God is not trying to pay us back, but he's trying to bring us back. And that is such a false notion of God that God is in the business of paying us back, but rather he wants to bring us back. And so this, this entire reclamation project that God is doing in our lives in many ways is introducing us to our true selves, who we are in Christ. And that true self is allowed to have the funhouse mirror stripped away, be able to see myself for who I really am. And then I get to do this thing that in some ways we have a very distorted view of as well, and that's called repentance. And repentance is not a punishment, but in reality, it's me agreeing with God. Agreeing with God of what is already true and what he already knows I mean, think about David. David sees his life, and, and this was one complicated dude. He's a man after God's own heart, but yet he's murdering people and stealing their wives. How do you reconcile that? But yet God knows all of that. God's familiar and acquainted with David and the way that he's been wired. And I would say for all of us, this is really the value. This is the significance of allowing people deep access into your lives. If you're not in community, if you're not having folks that are well acquainted with your soul, if, if, if you're not one of those people who's going to allow people in to really see you, you're always going to stunt your growth. You're always going to stunt really your, your, your introduction to yourself and finding out more who you really are. 
we need people to reflect back to us who we really are. David presses this even a little bit before. He says in verse four, before a word is on my tongue, before a word is even spoken, before a word is even out of David's mouth, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before me and you lay your hand upon me. What he's saying is, God, you are, you're, you're deeply involved with what's percolating inside of my heart and you hem me in behind and before me and you're laying your hand upon me. This means in some ways that God is searching through us. He's searching through your motivations and he's searching through mine. I mean, I think about it. Every single one of us in our homes, we have those junk drawers. We have those old boxes filled with knickknacks and relics and past letters and photos and maybe some things that we've held on to. And just imagine someone coming in and opening all those up and sifting through them and searching through them and getting such a glimpse into who you are and your past and your history. And God is doing that. And God has done that. And God knows you and he knows what makes you tick and he knows who you are. Right here today, God knows you completely. That's the real God. Now, once again, if you think of this as like, well, that's scary. Kind of like how Google knows all your thoughts. You know, when you type something in Google, it already knows. Or when you go on to Amazon, they're like, how did I know I was coming here to order cat litter and slippers? Like, how does it know that already? Well, God has much more exhaustive knowledge than even Google and Amazon. And if you think about this, what God is really doing is saying, I'm not building a case against you. I mean, if we think of God as a prosecutor, then this is terrifying, isn't it? But if we think of God as a doting parent, like, I'm deeply intrigued. You're my child. You're my boy. You're my girl. I love you. I want to know you. I delight in you. And I already know who you are anyway. So just come into the light and agree with me and repent and be introduced to who you really are. What a beautiful invitation. So this first section, these first six verses, what this is, is this is God's omniscience, meaning God knows everything. God's omniscience. It's your big one of our big theological words for the day, God's omniscience. That God knows everything. And see, for us who come and we're willing to walk in the light and practice repentance and we see that God wants to bring us back rather than pay us back, this is such good news. Because the gaze of God is upon everything, either for redemption or judgment, one way or another. Nothing escapes the knowledge of God. Could you imagine, though, for David... Think of David. There were times in his life where he didn't want this to be true, just like for you and for me. Are there times in your life, have there been seasons, maybe you're there today, where the idea that God knows everything about you, that does not seem great. Maybe that seems awful. I mean, David had that moment. Once again, when you're David and you have a guy killed and you steal his wife, what do you want to do? You want to cover that up. You want to put that away. You want to hope that no one ever finds out. That's why David even says, such knowledge, such knowledge is too wonderful for me to attain. And he goes on in verse seven, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? And imagine there were days where David honestly wanted to do that. God, like I realize that there are parts of my life that I would rather you not see. There's things on my browser history I don't want you to know about, God. There are things in my past, there are things from Friday night I don't want you to know about. There's that fight with my wife from last week that I hope no one asks me about. But God knows. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, 
What David is saying is if I go all the way to heaven, if I find a way to get all the way to heaven, you're already there, God. And if I, if I make my home, if I just say, you know, I must be a lost cause, so I'll make my bed in the grave, you're there too. You're there too. I can't escape you, God. And then he says, what if I, what if I, I, I build the best boat ever and I find a way to flee across the sea? Well, how'd that work for Jonah? <laughs> God just got a fish and swallowed him up and brought him back anyway. Saying you can't outrun me. And, and some of us, we're, we're, we're trying to do a Jonah. We're trying to. We're saying like, maybe I'll orchestrate my, way, my life in a way in which I don't need God, in which I don't need others, in which I can keep all my sins a secret and no one's ever going to find me out and no one's ever going to get to know me and I'm just going to find a way to coast through this entire life keeping everything hidden. And God loves us way too much to let that happen. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And let's be honest, there's been a lot of moments where us in this room, myself included, where I've wanted the darkness to cover me. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. God, you see right through the dark. I can fool my community. I can fool my spouse. I can fool everyone, but I can't fool you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. This is a literary tool that David is using. It's called a Erasmus. And what he's doing is he's contrasting far extremes and opposite sides of something, whether you say the east from the west, heaven to the grave, the sea to the ocean, and everything in between. What he's really saying is you cover the totality of that. You encapsulate all of this. This is known as God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere, that God is everywhere. Now, this is not pantheism. Pantheism, which our culture also can dive into, is that God is everything. This is not that God is everything. This is that God is everywhere. Let me illustrate this for a second. Um, up here on the screen will come a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. If you're a MacBook user, this is usually the picture you get on your computer. Any MacBook fans? A few? Okay. Um, you're there. You see that little red dot is right there? That's where you live. Welcome home. Um, that's, that's your house. So you live there. The Milky Way galaxy has over 100 billion stars in it. 100 billion stars in just the Milky Way galaxy alone. There's you know, I mean, put that in perspective, how many are in our solar system. We're a trivial, small, minute piece of even the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy from one side to the other is 150,000 light years. So if you were to go the speed of light, it would still take you 150,000 years to span all the way across it. Now, here's the thing that really blows my mind is the Milky Way galaxy is just one of 200 billion known galaxies in the universe. So think about that for the second. Think about how many black holes are out there and think about how many supernovas and star clusters and solar systems and expansive galaxies and, and, and whatever else you could think out there. And God is aware and present of every one of those planets and suns and moons and stars and comets. He's just as near to an ant who's crawling under a rock right now in the Amazon jungle as he is with us right now in Midlothian, Texas. God is ever-present. He's ever-present. Think about that. Sometimes I have those moments in my life where I'm sure like some of you have, where you go, God, where are you? God, things seem to be falling apart. I don't know what to do. I can't fix this. God, where are you? David had some of those moments. David often faced those moments where he was, had, had militaries and armies coming after him and he found himself in despair in a cave going, God, where are you? God, if you don't show up, God, if you don't do something, I don't know what's going to happen. 
Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place? God, where are you? David realizes, though, that our God, our God, the God of the Bible, he, he definitively answers this in Jesus. He says, I'll show you where I am. I'm going to come down in human form. I'm going to walk amongst you. I'm going to live the life that you could not live. I'm going to die the death that you could not die. And then I'm going to hang on a cross so that all of you, all of you would have the invitation to new life. Whoever, whoever, whoever would love God would freely be offered this invitation of grace and new life and restoration because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. God, where are you? He, that's where he is. And then he, he, he's, he's resurrected. And his Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. God, where are you? He's in you. He's with you. He's near. He cares. He's present. David moves on in uh, the next couple of verses, 15 through 16. Or let's look at 14, actually. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So this, this God, this God loves you so much that he was intricately involved in you being made. Paul, in Ephesians 2, he says that you are God's handiwork. You are God's craftsmanship, Ephesians 2.10. What's really interesting, too, the Greek word there is poiema, and usually it's used in the context, or at least in Greek culture at the time, to describe a piece of art, usually one that was one of a kind or unique in its construction. Because God doesn't do assembly lines, and he doesn't make a, a, an assembly line of dishwashers, but rather he makes children. He makes unique, wonderfully made, intricately known children. You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. What a powerful message, especially for us in a day and age where often people can slip into ideologies or belief systems that really what makes people valuable is what they can do and their usefulness and their capabilities. And this psalm actually says it has nothing to do with what you're capable of doing. It has nothing to do with how smart you are or how good looking you are or how much success you are or anything like that, but rather because of whose you are and that you're made in the image of God and your dignity and value and worth come because you're an image bearer of the God of the universe, not because of how useful you are. And we live in a day and age where you're being beaten over the head just as I am day in and day out with messages of inadequacy and comparison and contrasting. If only I was a little smarter, if only I was a little funnier, if only I was this. I mean, you fill in the blank of whatever it is, those pressures, those, those stories, those narratives we tell ourselves. One of my favorite writers, he says, at the deepest part of all of us, we wrestle with massively deep insecurity. We wrestle with massively deep insecurity. But yet David, he, he's coming and he's reminding us and he's telling us. I mean, this is so amazing. He says, you are fearfully and you're wonderfully made. And what happens when you don't feel like that, though? What happens when you're like, well, maybe God made a mistake with me. Maybe God got it wrong. I would tell you that God is, doesn't make mistakes and he knows exactly who you are and he didn't get it wrong, but rather he made you to be you. Your frailties, 
your weaknesses, your shortcomings, and all, so that you would glorify him, so that you would be used by him, and so that you would know him. He loves you. He's for you. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that that the sooner we get to this place where we can be introduced to ourselves, say, this is who I am. Like, here's what I'm not good at. Here's what I am good at. This is who I am. The sooner we can get introduced to ourselves, he uses the word soberly assess yourself. And it is, it is totally okay to not be good at certain things. It is totally okay to not be things that other people are and to just be you. You're loved by God. You're in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. I mean, if, I, if I'm honest, I spent a lot of my 20s wanting to be someone other than who I was. I mean, especially in church world, there can be all these pressures and comparison where you sometimes want to be someone else or be something else. And the most freeing feeling is knowing that you're loved by God and you can be exactly who you are. What a beautiful thing, being reminded that you are fearfully and that you're wonderfully made. David says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. I just love... um, Thousands of years ago, already David was, was giving us this glimpse that, that, that what we would see in our day and age, Midlothian, Texas, right now, your days are all already planned out. Your days are planned out. Why? Because God is all capable as well. This is known as his omnipotence. That he's able to guide, that there's providence, that his sovereignty, sovereignty is just a really big word for meaning God's in control God's in control of your life. Think how many times David had to go back and believe that. God, it does not feel like you've got this day figured out. God, it does not feel like you have this week figured out for me. God, I'm facing unemployment. God, my kids are going off the rails. God, me and my spouse are at our limits. God's saying, I've got this. I'm capable. I'm all-powerful. Now, once again, what good would it really be if God was all-knowing, but he wasn't also all-powerful? I mean, he'd be really good at Jeopardy. He would have all the answers, but, I mean, he'd be great at Bible trivia. I mean, he, he would have a lot of information. But what makes God who he is is not only that he's all-knowing, but he's also all-powerful. And not only is he all-powerful, but he doesn't want to pay you back, but he wants to bring you back, and he wants to love and know you. So when we bring all these together, we begin to see that God is all-knowing, that God is all-present, and that he's all-powerful. Here's the best news of all. This is not a capricious, this is not a mean, this is not a vindictive God, but this is a God. Try again. There we go. This is a loving, redemptive God. This is a God who loves you and is for you and wants good for you. And he doesn't stop pursuing us. He doesn't stop wooing us. We'll do two more verses here and then we'll we'll have a quick summary thought of the, the very end. But 17, 18 say this. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
So one of the things that I think what David does is David realizes is this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is also a God to be awed. How precious are your thoughts? God, when I think about your thoughts, I realize that they are too lofty. I realize that they are beyond me. I realize that I'm not always going to be able to comprehend them because I'm not God. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not all-capable, but you are. And when I meditate on that, when I consider that, there is great comfort that comes into my life, that I have a God who's for me, that I have a God who knows me, and that I have a God who loves me. And as I sit and meditate on that, that transforms me and changes me. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who loves you and he's waiting to meet you, to love you, to redeem you. Friend, all I would say is when you think about your relationship with God, does it feel much more like a museum relic or does it feel like something that's an experiential part of your day to day? Uh, Last week, I went to um, Austin with my girls and we went to the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library, and I saw the old presidential motorcade, and it was really cool because it had all these, just these signs around it, and you could read information and the things that it had done and, you know, the, the events that had happened and the history that it was involved in, but what was the thing about this is it was no longer useful. It, it no longer was actually functional. It was just for display. And I think about, too, if we're honest, does our relationship with God sometimes start to feel like a museum piece? Like an old artifact. You know what? I had this great time at camp. I went on a mission trip. I had this great season where I was on fire for God. I had this season where I was reading my Bible and loving people and faithful in community and repenting of my sin. But now that seems like long ago and God is a little bit more of a dusty relic. God's saying, come back. Meditate on his thoughts. Dig into the Bible. I mean, it's incredible. The God of the universe wants to show himself to you and I. I mean, I, this is crazy sometimes when I think about that, that I don't have to guess what God is like, but he's telling me what he's like. And he waits eagerly with anticipation for me to come and meet him in his word. And to find out more who I am, to be introduced to myself, to repent of my sin, and to see who I truly am in Christ. So every single one of us in this room, here's what I want you to know. When you think of this God, when you think of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-present God, do you realize that Jesus is the manifestation of that? That our God, Jesus, as Colossians tells us, he sits ruling and reigning over all the universe. That he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, He's called Emmanuel because he's with us. Our God is not far off. Our God is not sitting in judgment. Our God is not like Allah who hopes you just figure it out and you do the right things and you make more good decisions than bad decisions. But rather he came to make all the good decisions for us, all the ones that we couldn't do. And then to give us a new nature and a new heart and a new life. This is what God comes to do. This is who God is. And so he got off his throne and Jesus lives this sinful life or sinless life, sorry, lives this sinless life in place of me. And the good news of the gospel is I can come clean, I can, be, I can be known, I can be made new. Listen, if any of you walked in this room today and you've just been carrying that junk drawer of your life that you're just gonna, you're gonna take a stab at keeping secret for another, I don't know, year, two years, three, I don't know how long you're gonna try and run that out. You don't have to. That's got to get exhausting. That's got to get tiring, right? 
And God doesn't want to pay you back. He wants to bring you back. There's grace upon grace upon grace when we agree with God of who we truly are. And so here'd be my encouragement to you. You've already been found out. We know you don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. (laughs) You don't have to pretend. You don't have to stay in shame. You don't have to try to run away from God's presence anymore because he's run to you. You were outed at the cross. The cross is God's ultimate declaration that humanity is guilty. But it's also God's ultimate declaration that humanity is redeemed. And so what's stopping you besides some pride, some, some, some of the fallout that might come? Who knows? Maybe you're embarrassed for a bit. Maybe you have to have some hard conversations. Maybe you have to come clean to your spouse or a friend or a past relationship. But God's already got that. There's grace upon grace if we'll walk in the light. So I want you guys to bow your head. And there's three things, three things that I think we see today. I want all of us just to spend a moment right now. Because God's here. God, you are, you are here. We don't speak of you in the third person, but rather we speak of you in the first person. Jesus, you are here. You are with us. And we are so thankful for that. And so, God, for those of us in this room right now where, where we really find ourselves feeling no one will ever know us, no one will really ever understand us, no one will ever accept us, maybe we need to hear and believe once more the good news that we are known, that we're fully known. And in spite of being fully known, mistakes, junks, failures, weaknesses, sin and all, you still say loved. You still say mine. So, so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're sitting in this room right now and you go, if I was truly found out, if I truly came clean, no one would love me. Friends, David answers that in the emphatic, not true. You are loved and you are known. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you who are sitting here this morning, your issue is that you wonder, am I alone? Am I alone? And we know that we're not alone, God. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And you've also given us a church family. You've given us other believers who your spirit dwells in. And you've given us your word. All to speak into our lives. All as tools of sanctification to help grow us and conform us and to shape us to become more and more like you. So none of us are alone. None of us are alone. But rather we're loved and we're embraced by you. And maybe some of us, we feel like life is spinning out of control. When we look at our circumstances, when we look at our future, when we look at everything that's facing us, we just feel massively insecure. God, will you come through? God, will you provide? God, can I trust you? God, are you reliable? And so what we need to hear this morning is that, God, you are secure. God, you have provided. God, you know all of our days. You know all that awaits us, and you know our final day. You know our day of glorification that in a few short minutes, in what feels like a few short minutes, a brief amount of time, we will see you face to face. Every single one of us in this room, we are loved, we are known, we are not alone, and we have a God who is able and secure 
And so God, I would ask that no one walks out of this room today without asking themselves, where do they need to repent from those areas where they've been tempted to believe lies about you, that you are not near them, that you do not care about them, and that you're not going to come through for them? And if someone's been here today and they're ready to come clean, they're ready to walk in the light, realizing that they've already been found out, may they go to our prayer table and just pray with someone. Be encouraged. Be uh, reminded that there's grace upon grace upon grace if we'll walk in the light. Because you did not come to pay us back, but rather to bring us back. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.